Here we are. This is Mary Houston, and good afternoon. And once again, we're back here with um, our, uh, what are we here? What do we do here, anyway? It's Outer Space Odyssey, or Inner Space Odyssey. Maybe I named my own show. You know, but this used to be a cooking show. And, um, and then something very strange happened to me. I still can't figure out what it is about a couple of years ago, three, two. And it went from a cooking show to um, this show on consciousness. And I've been looking for a name for the show now. It might have been something you ate. It probably was something. I'm, I'm convinced, you know, somehow they're connected. Um, but I've, I've been having a contest, a name the show contest, for now about a year. And, you know, we get like this. Harvey. Harvey is probably like, you know, right up there in the number ones. We get things like... Six-foot rabbit. Light and love. Um, uh, the path of love, the, you know, really like these terrible names. We've been, we've been looking for a name for our press. We have a horrible name now for our, um, our, our uh, publishing press, which is IDHHB Publishing. It's a horrible name. Nobody likes it. It, uh, it, Idahab, which means um, uh, the dying process in, in one language. In another language, it means uh, rarity or scarcity. But it's a terrible name. It's very unpronounceable. I-D-H-H-B. So they've been looking for it. And we finally came up with Abandonment Press. And it sounded, yeah, that's what <laughs> everyone did. That's exactly <laughs> the expression everyone wore after we came up with that name. So now they're coming up with all kinds of Greek names. Perhaps a Greek name for your show. A Greek like name. Maria. Well, like, for instance, the, the Greek god of communication, which is Telephanes. Or the Greek god of business, Dictaphanes. Business? Yeah. I don't know about business. Well, business <laughs> communication. Yeah. Oh, okay. Dictaphanes, of course. Well, that's a little, yeah, that's obscure enough. It is obscure. It. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, let me tell everybody who this person is that's speaking into this other. Let me, let me tell you what I know about you. Um, the other day I got this flyer in the mail on Friday, and I thought, oh, no, another one of these workshops. Another. That's what I thought, too. And I didn't, I saw the Gabriel Project, and I thought, oh, you know, I didn't even, my friend said, what is that? I don't know, so angels, I said, and I put, crumpled it up and stuck it in a piece of newspaper. And later on that evening, came home after a grueling evening of depression and sat down on my couch, and there was this flyer, and I just picked it up, and I started to read it. And, I mean, if you can imagine, I'm doing this show a long time, I get to see a lot of this stuff. And it just usually goes in that was in one ear and out the other for those of you who couldn't see and it just um i li i think you did a very good job on the flyer because um i thought it was um it was excellently done it spoke to me immediately it, i i just said this is something i want to do and you're a person i want to meet and as i looked at it somehow your name then started to ring a bell that i heard it someplace so um I was asking around if people um, knew you, and I have a friend um, who, as a matter of fact, was on here last week, serious, um, serious transformational therapist, of, um, lived in India for many years and worked with Trothing. Tulku Rinpoche. Right, I can never get his name right. And um, he... He doesn't have many nice things to say about many teachers, but he said, um, he said, you're an interesting guy, 
and you were a character, which means, uh, he said, you're a real character and you're an interesting guy. And then I became, you know, really very interested because I know how my friend is and I know he doesn't jump up and down from many people. So the fact that he said that was like a big, uh, you know, was enough uh, to get you past a lot of people. Um, so I called up several friends and I read um, the brochure to, to them and I said, um, this person sounds like an interesting person and the photograph that they gave here is, um, that they sent along with this is formidable looking. He doesn't look, uh, um, well, I don't know, I'm being silly now. Uh, but in any event, um, I called up and saw to see if I could get you here uh, to interview you and to talk about your workshop and uh, more importantly to uh, find out a little about you and who you are and um, you seem to be doing this transformational work for a very long time more people you know longer than most people I've met so uh, how'd you get started in this business business is the right word <laughs> first of first all. of all let me say who you are oh, I'm okay. so rude everybody out there Tom Dick Jane Mary Paul Peter um, my guest um, this late afternoon is a gentleman by the name of E.J. Gold, um, uh, who's written many books. The, uh, the most recent, uh, the, the Lazy Man's Guide to Death and Dying, um, the New American Book of the Dead. Uh, was that your previous book, mm -hmm. New American Book of the Dead? Somebody, by the way, uh, two weeks ago on my show, a listener called up and recommended that book, as a matter of fact, uh -huh. to read. I, I did a program on death, and they, um, they recommended it. Um, wh what other books have you written? I know there's a low, whole slew of them. I wrote, so far, I think it's 36 titles. I don't just talk into a microphone somebody, you know, puts it together into a book or anything like that. I write the books myself. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I talk into a microphone and take the tapes and work with them and so on. Um, let's see, I've written the uh, Gabriel Papers, which is a, a report of a, it's a secret document revealing what occurred between the Lord and the Archangel Gabriel on Mount Sinai not too long ago. Mm -hmm. um, revealing the horrible angelic plans for humans of the planet Earth, which if they only knew what they were, uh, we'd be all over. Um, I wrote Jaime the Barbarian, which is a fall release. That's uh, a very, I think, a very funny book. Jaime the Barbarian is about a guy who works at a deli, goes on a barefoot singles cruise, wakes up in the middle of the ocean on a, on a lump of uh, charred wood to find a, uh, an ancient galley bearing down upon him. And uh, luckily meets up with a princess who rescues him with a laser sword he has an umbrella and an attaché case as his only weapons and, of course, his mind. He's a CPA, unfortunately, which means that his mind doesn't get him very far. <laughs> sort of left Straight him. line thinking. <laughs> and uh, he's, he's very linear thinking and she's very intuitive. And uh, it's a very heroic uh, thing. He finds himself in the, the, the uh, land of uh, Kona the Barbarian. And he's uh, strapping 135 pounds soaking wet. And uh, another one is called, uh, well, there's, there's the first part of the Redfin Trilogy, which is called The Glass Wall. It's about a fish who discovers the transformational process. He has no arms, no legs, no um, 
technology to help him out. No biofeedback apparatus. Uh, and no one to consult. No teacher. No um, books. He has no, uh, no way of, of um, discovering already existing techniques. He has to discover everything for himself. Gee, the fun way. It's the fun <laughs> way. It's the good way. It's the best way. It's highly recommended. Um, a little help now and then, a little nudge now and then, even a little nudge now and then, <laughs> as we Buddhists say. Uh, this, is, this is the first time I've seen this brochure, I should mention. As we walked in here, as we scrambled in here last moment, Paul handed me, this is Paul Landman on my left, and Paul is uh, the person who's responsible for this formidable photograph. It is formidable. I'd be scared to death to see this guy. <laughs> I really thought, oh, God, he's one of those type of transformational people. Yeah, <laughs> you know, well, it's a, it's of the that gold type. It's a gold stare. It obviously is a gold <laughs> stare. My, my father was known for this. I should tell you, I, by way of warning, if you ever read Galaxy magazine, H.L. Gold, Horace Gold, who was the editor of Galaxy magazine for 10 years. Galaxy magazine was one of the, it was one of the big three science fiction magazines. He also um, edited Beyond Fantasy Fiction and uh, If, we bought If uh, from the original publishers and published that for a while as well. So I have written in, since the 1950s, since the mid-50s, a lot of science fiction. And I warn people who read my book that 90% of it is science fiction, 5% is horse pucky, and 5% <laughs> is something genuine, which you have to then take and do something with. It's your responsibility to pick out anything that's of uh, any value. And it's also true of this workshop. We're going to, can I say futz around? On yeah, here? Good. it's not one I of the seven dirty that. words. Okay, well, I thought of an eighth, which I don't want to talk about. Let me know later. I'll talk to you about it later. Um, anyways, the first time I've seen this, this uh, particular poster, I had no idea what we were supposed to be talking about. <laughs> but it is an interesting subject, the uh, subject of the workshop. We'll be sitting around in the workshop some of the time. We'll be moving around other parts of the time, and we'll be doing various and sundry things. I'm not quite sure what. I never am quite sure what. I have some idea of mm -hmm. what we're going to do, having seen at this moment what we're going to be doing and dealing with in the workshop, which I didn't know up until this very moment. I promise you, I knew nothing about what they wanted me to do. I told Paul, I'll do anything that you and the, the uh, people who are taking the workshop want me to do. I'm open to whatever it is that you, you want to deal with. They want to deal with the chronic which is a defense mechanism against the waking state. Mm -hmm. um, I want to mention also that we talked a lot about the books. I'm not here to sell books. Um, the books are fun. They're great books. I enjoy writing them. I'm sure uh, a lot of people tell me they, they enjoy reading them. That's great. The books are nothing, absolutely nothing, except an introduction. They're an entry-level mechanism. And they're not so much bait as they are a way of, of maybe starting some kind of alchemical process inside, starts cooking something. I make jewelry, and very unusual, very strange jewelry in a, in a sense. The, the jewelry that I make, I've taken the designs 
out of 14 years experience with archaeology I'm a practicing archaeologist I have friends who are practicing thespians but I, I haven't been a practicing thes thespian now for gosh it's been what four, four or five months so I'm off the stuff anyway the jewelry is based on Greek Roman Parthian Scythian uh, Minoan Egyptian designs very anything newer than 6th century AD to me is modern totally modern it might as well have come out of Macy's and to me the idea of the jewelry we calculate our our selling prices on about 15 cents an hour labor and we make the stuff out of semi-precious and silver and 22 karat gold and we sell us for actually very little money the point is that there's an entry-level contact that takes place and I'm getting to a point here actually it makes sense um, the contact that takes place as a result of this starts to kick off something in someone um, there was uh, one woman mentioned that her feeling about this uh, this is Linda Corville who is a uh, museum designer a very big museum designer. She just redesigned the Tyrell Museum of Paleontology. She designed some of the pavilions at Expo. She's very, very talented in the design field. And she asked me, look, why are we making pieces that are ancient design? Why don't we develop something of our own? And I said, suppose you tell me what you think. I'll give you a little hint. The ancient designs produce a feeling, uh, an emotion, a contact, some kind of connection, a bridge, if you like. Oh, I can't use the word bridge. Doggone it, it's trademarked by Scientology. Okay, um, a connection point, then, let's say, uh, between ourselves and, and ancient civilizations. And she said, you mean the, the emotion of a sense of loss is, is what I would call it, she said. I said, yes, I call it nostalgia, but it can be easily called a sense of loss. A, a feeling that you know you have contact with that, a contact with the ancient civilization, a contact with that culture, but you can't quite reach it. The tantalus effect. You can't quite get at it. And that contact point starts something cooking. Maybe not now, maybe not in a, in a year from now, maybe not even ten years from now. Will the results be discernible? But over a long period of time, that begins to cook. The juices begin to flow. And eventually, it can be in some people that something occurs as a result of that. Mm -hmm. They begin looking for something. Then she remembered when I was 12 years old, she said, I had a class in philosophy. And the philosophy, part of it was nothing. The contact with the ancient civilization and that same emotion that you're talking about. She said, started something in me when I was 12 that hasn't stopped since and started me on a search mm -hmm. so that's the idea with a workshop like this this is a serious workshop this is not a contact entry-level workshop this is a workshop for people who have been working and who are serious and who have background I don't want to convince somebody that for the need for transformation uh -huh. so this is not a contact point it's a very um, assumptive workshop we make the basic assumption that people have been working 
that they know what work is, they know what work on oneself is, and that they do have an idea of the waking state as opposed to the sleeping state. Mm -hmm. And they want to work on, on the, def the defense mechanism, the barriers to that. Okay. Okay. So, um, why don't you give... Um, I mean, I have an idea. I know there's many people out there. I know there's some people who listen to the show. I get letters that they listen to the show. They don't know why they listen. They think I'm totally out of my mind, but they listen anyway, right? Um, just a, s a small idea for people waking and not waking. You know, what? Asleep. What is sure, that? let's dig into it. That's okay. fine. Like Let me deliver it on, on a no-horse-pucky level. Okay. Okay. First of all, there's a fairly common idea that started, I think, about in the West, about 1924-25, when Gurdjieff first arrived in America. The, um, you must understand that Gurdjieff has had a tremendous influence. I, I know you already know this tremendous influence on transformational psychology as it's known in the West. At the same time, it must be understood that he was v grossly mistranslated and grossly misunderstood by Westerners. The idea that one is asleep must first be divided into two categories, just as his idea of self-study you have to define the word self before you can understand what self-study is. I am not a Gurdjieffian. I'm simply stating that the influence of Gurdjieff, mm -hmm. which has been very profound, has colored our thought in a certain way that makes it impossible to discuss these ideas until we redefine away from the translations, the Orajian and... Uh, and uh, Benetian translations of Gurdjieff. Somewhere along the line, Gurdjieff said something like, man is asleep. Mm -hmm. right. We must define what we mean. We must redefine these words, sleep and waking. To begin with, there is the machine we call the human biological machine, which is the body with its mind, emotions, its um, uh, motor reflexive operation and so forth. Let's say the human body, and let's include its mind and its emotional states in that. It categorize it as the machine. We'll call it the machine. People don't like to use the word machine necessarily to describe it, but I can show that it is a machine in the sense that it's a reflexive mechanism. Now. Let's differentiate the machine from ourselves in the real sense, what we call the essential self. It is not an undefinable something or other. It's a definitely definable thing. It is that part of oneself which is not the machine. Mm -hmm. Now, suppose that in recent times, you referred to those teachers who have said there's a, an observer, let's say, within us, an observer, a, uh, uh, a knower, which is not of the body, which is not of the mind, and so forth. Now, how would you differentiate that? Ah, I am observing 
myself walking down the street. Now, is that the observer? Is that the essential self? That is, is that what is not the machine? Or is that a part of the machine observing the machine? Mm-hmm. Easily differentiated. If it's the mind observing the machine, it will not interfere. Its observation won't interfere with the machine because it's part of the machine's own ongoing process. But if it's something which is not the machine observing the machine, something will happen to the machine. Something will occur. A change will occur. Because an observer is now in action. It's a very loose application of the Heisenberg Principle, which is that the observation of something causes a change in the thing which is being observed. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the basis for the waking state as well that the observation of the essential self toward the machine begins to have a definite effect upon the machine. Now, let me back up a moment. It's getting a little confusing, I know, but that's, what, that's what, why workshops take two days and not mm -hmm. two minutes. And this is what we'll be dealing with. The essential self, that which is not the machine, is not asleep, nor can it be asleep. It is neither awake nor asleep. The machine, however, is asleep in the sense that we don't like to use the word sleep. It is in the sleeping state, which is to say not the waking state. Anyone can tell that the machine is ordinarily in the sleeping state because everyone has had tastes, glimpses of the waking state from time to time. These are those times in your life when you look back and you think, my God, why do I remember with intimate precise, exact detail, the sights, the smells, the sounds, the, the, the taste, the every, every detail of such and such a thing. Why do I remember sitting in my high chair, for instance, and the sunlight gleaming in through the window, and, and uh, my grandmother uh, stirring oatmeal on the stove, and the radio blaring in the next room, the news is coming over with Alva Liddell, and on and on and on. Why do these things occur? At the times that they occur, that's a mystery that I don't, I'm not prepared to discuss at this point. But those are waking state experiences. And everyone has them. Everyone in life, every human being who is alive, has had waking state experiences. Those times when you say, my God, I am alive. I am really alive. Everything comes to life. Not only does oneself come to life, but everything around oneself comes to life. And everything around oneself takes on an element of surprise. Mm -hmm. This is the waking state. It is obvious when you compare your daily life with that waking state that you spend the majority of the time not in the waking state. It is not the essential self but the machine which has fallen asleep. Now, if the machine could be brought into the waking state at will, first of all, of what value would that be? And secondly, and more importantly, how could one do such a thing? It's not so important what the advantages are. There are obvious advantages. There are advantages unthought of, advantages you wouldn't even expect for the waking state. 
things which can be done with a waking state that are so unexpected and so unknown in ordinary life and so utterly unknown in the sleeping state that they can't even be guessed at. In the sleeping state, you can read or hear or see those things about the waking state which are advantageous, which are wonderful and unexpected and unknown in the sleeping state, and yet not hear them, not see them, not understand them. In the sleeping state, it can't be understood mm -hmm. what the waking state is and what its uses are. Now, the waking state of the machine is what Gurdjieff was referring to, but this was mistranslated and misunderstood. He meant that the machine itself can be brought into the waking state by a particular type of action, which is called, in the Sufi tradition, the act of attention or the power of attention. By turning the attention of the essential self upon the machine, the machine is brought naturally and gently into the waking state. Now you'll notice that every technique and every method of transformation requires the use of attention upon the machine and expects the machine to enter the waking state. I can translate this for you into a variety of no, this is really good because... Of languages. I mean, I knew that these things worked, but I didn't understand why. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know? that's why they work. Okay. And everyone has the secret. There is no one individual, no one school that has the secret, and nobody else does. Everyone does. Anyone tells you that they are the only possessors of this secret, there's something seriously wrong with them. They're making a buck at it. Very... Uh, realistically, someone like myself can work with 50 to 200 people in a lifetime. And anyone who's really serious about this doesn't go out looking for people. My suggestion to people is I'm looking for people who are really strongly attracted to working with me. I work with someone for anywhere from six months to two years, and then out the door. After that, they're on their own. And at this point, there are about 50, maybe 60 people in New York that I'm working with. Realistically, I couldn't possibly work with more than 10 besides that. In other words, that would be the extent of, of how far I could stretch my attention in order to give everyone full value. Um, I also want to caution, this is, I see this as one of my roles, I, I caution people against guruitis. Um, I know of very few things, and I know those things extremely well, and I can teach others the same thing. And I know a number of other individuals who can also do the same thing. And I would caution people very carefully to appraise what they throw themselves into and with whom. 
And the, the larger the scope, the larger the scale of the school, the more people they try to service, the more suspect I would hold it. And the more money that's involved, the more I would suspect it as well. Um, there, are, there are tens of thousands of scams in this world. I can think of any number of better ways to spend one's time and money than these ideas in a large-scale, slick operation. Mm -hmm. So, be advised. That's my advice to the lovelorn. Mm -hmm. um, if, if someone is extremely serious, it ought not to cost them a whole lot of money. Obviously, it takes money to put a workshop on. You've got to rent the building and all those kind of things. But you should judge it from that. You know, like, how much did it cost to rent this building? And, and how much did it cost to publicize this? And how much did it cost to actually deliver the workshop, let's say? Or how much did it cost to actually deliver a seminar or a weekend uh, or a week-long thing and so on? And, and judge according to that. And then how much are they going to take me for from then on? Mm -hmm. And I've, I, uh, I try to stress this point with people. It, it, I see. We'll have the teacher for the minimum amount of time necessary, and. Uh, doesn't need the money. I promise you. Mm -hmm. They don't need it. Because I thought that was, I can't, we can't say prices on the air, but if people are interested, they can call. The, the flyer, and I realized that it was a two-day workshop and what the price was, I was really surprised. And, and having, like I said, seen a lot of flyers, um, mm -hmm. that was a big interest to me. Um, so people who are interested, they can call after the show. Um, they can call here, because I'm going to be here for a while, at 2790937. Um, and you have a phone number on the flyer. You want to give it? Yeah, I would. It's uh, 212 Two two three zero seven nine two. Want to say it again? Sure, it's two. I know them out there. It's two two three zero seven nine two. And you can get. And you should say, Paul, that operators are standing by. <laughs> <laughs> Come on down right now and get started in the credit world. Um, how did you? Um, I mean, how did you go from an archaeologist to um, to doing um, to doing this weird stuff? Okay, you, you remember you asked for it. <laughs> in 1959, I was writing science fiction and fantasy. At the same time, I had a couple of clubs in town, jazz clubs in town, which are no longer existing. I brought some jazz music with me, but I don't 
I don't think we have time to play it. Um, and uh, I worked as a bass player and uh, horn player for a while at the same time. And at the same time, I was uh, fascinated by archaeology and by museumology in general. And I was painting and sculpting and so on. So I had a lot of art background and so on. And uh, I think I hung out every weekend. Had to have been every single weekend, bar none, for at least two years at the Natural History Museum or at the Met or at the Spanish Museum or the Jewish Museum or later on at the Guggenheim when it got built and so on. And uh, the Museum of Modern Art. I went to every museum I could find in this town. There must be 200. And when I went to California in the early 60s, I had grown up here, I should mention, because my family knew a lot of people. We were, our, our apartment, if you ever read uh, Fred Pohl's book, The Way the Future Was, you'll find out what our apartment was like. We had Jackson Pollock and, uh, and uh, uh, John Cage and Merce Cunningham and um, uh, Julian Huxley and uh, Bob and Jenny Heinlein, all the science fiction writers, as you might expect, Damon Knight and... Uh, um, name a science fiction writer, and they were there, and a fantasy writer, they were there, and a mystery writer, they were there. Most of the, the um, literary society and the literati and the intelligentsia and so forth flocked into this apartment. We would not uncommonly have 50 people for dinner in Stuyvesant Town, which is hard to live with, you know. And amid all this, there were a number of people who were involved in uh, sculpture, painting, and in archaeology. Okay, I went out to the West Coast, and I started working as an artist, started making my living as an artist. Uh, artist by day and stockbroker uh, reporter at night, reporting on the market, doing market analyses. And I began to sell my sculpture, particularly. And one day, a guy named Bill Enking, who was an art historian, said, you are wasting your time. You're a mediocre sculptor. But boy, oh boy, do you know your history. Let me show you something. And he just, he opened up a, a, a library of slides on Greco-Roman, Egyptian, on Chinese, started me barreling into Sung and Tang dynasties, and uh, before I knew it, I had a, an all-consuming interest in archaeology. I, mean, I had no idea why. It was terrific. I thought it was fantastic. I pursued that for quite some time. And then one thing and another happened, and I ended up uh, working with groups of people in the mid-60s. There were a lot of people on the streets loose at that time. 
knocking around wondering what in the hell is happening. And so I started getting involved with groups of people. And little by little, the archaeology began to drift. About 10 years ago, I began to see the connection between archaeology and transformational psychology. And so blew right back into it again and began building a museum, at first single-handedly, and then more and more people became involved and became interested in it. And so I've begun to connect archaeology very strongly with transformational psychology. Now, a year ago, in a series of workshops in New York, the people who came to the workshops taught me, as they always do. Every year I learn something from these people. They, I don't know, they pay me and uh, come to take the workshop and I learn. It's fine. Works out well for me. And some people actually learn at the workshop too and accomplish things. One of the things I learned from these good people that I worked with last year is that jewelry in ancient design can be not only a connection between ancient civilizations and the present civilization, but that it also can be a method of work using the attention. And that is to say, we can use the attention exercises and plug them into building ancient jewelry. Mm -hmm. Now, it may seem completely out of place to connect those two things. What has this all got to do with the chronic personal barrier to the waking state, it says here on this poster. What has it all got to do with that? What does it have to do with a defense mechanism against the waking state? Well, remembering that it's the machine that has the waking state and sleeping state disparities. Working in archaeological context brings the machine into a particular mood. That mood makes it receptive to a particular type of attention, the attention we were talking about earlier. So my abiding interest in archaeology has gone along with everything else that I've been involved with for 25 years. I've worked with groups now for 25 years. Long time. <laughs> Are you stopping there? <laughs> I'm just <laughs> getting interested. <laughs> I don't know. I ran out of gear. <laughs> All right, let me ask you, um, I, can, I can always ask questions. I'm real good at that. Um, I've got eight of them I want to ask. Go for all eight, and we'll see what happens. I'm not good at answering questions. Great. <laughs> um, well, I could probably do both if I had to. Um, sure. Why does the machine go into it? Why is the machine sleeping mm -hmm. in the first place? Mm -hmm. What's the purpose of okay. it? Now we'll have to go back a little bit. I, I'm drawing from, there's a book that we put out, 50 copies. As you can tell, we're not extremely commercial. Um, and I'm drawing from this particular book at this point in the sense that um, I'm going to save us about three or four weeks of discussion by just taking the boiled down essential substances that came out of, out of uh, a lot of work with a lot of groups over the past few years. 
And we'll have to go back to the, uh, the reason for the defense mechanism in the first place. Why is, why does the machine leave the waking state and enter into the sleep state? Okay. Imagine yourself at the age of about five years. And you're beginning to have to function a little differently than you have up till then. Up till that time as a child, unless you have very bizarre parents, you're allowed to be a kid. You're allowed to have a, a kind of experience and a kind of approach to life which doesn't require you to function in a very structured way, in a linear, structured fashion. Now at five years old or thereabouts, suddenly structure is imposed. When structure is imposed, the natural chaotic state of the machine, which allows the machine to be in the waking state, in the here and now, begins to accept patterning, behavioral patterning, and expectation patterning, if you follow what I'm mm -hmm. getting at. It's required to function in a certain way, and it's required to function in a linear way to definite patterns, definite structures, which other people can predict. In other words, you begin functioning in a, in a way predictable to others. Mm -hmm. At the same time, predictable to yourself. This causes the machine to drop into the sleep state, number one, and then to remain in the sleep state, a defense mechanism begins to build from that age on. This defense mechanism prevents the machine from accidentally wandering into the waking state once again. Now, should the machine accidentally wander into the waking state, and should one become unable to return to the sleeping state at will, then at that point, the culture takes over and begins to help one reachieve the sleep state. This can be done in a variety of ways. Chemical therapies, or I shouldn't say that, chemical therapeutics are one method. Hypnotics, uh, soporifics, and so forth will reachieve the sleeping state. Um, very dynamic involvements will reachieve the sleeping state as well. Sports, for instance, this is an absolute reason for contact sports and for violence in, in a culture. Violence keeps the machine in the sleeping state. It keeps it on a special kind of alert which requires that, that the, the machine remain in the sleeping state. So there are all kinds of defense mechanisms. There's a cultural defense mechanism against the waking state. There are all waking state is not appropriate for things like high-speed power tools. It's not really recommended for things like, um, oh, uh, yacht navigation in a uh, in a bay, which is very crowded, you know, with uh, people coming, coming back into the bay on Sunday afternoon and under motorized power and so on. But why is that? It, uh, if you're in the waking state, aren't you supposedly more alert and more aware and more... No. Well, no, actually, the machine functions better in the sleeping state for what it does in the sleeping state. In other words, for normal, everyday functions, it is actually preferable 
to the machine to be in the sleeping state. Uh -huh. so the waking state is usable for something else, and it isn't necessary to be in the waking state all the time. It's completely pathological uh -huh. to try to be in the waking state all the time. It's nice that you told us that. <laughs> well, I mean, there's some, there are some people who do remain in the waking state all the time, and they have to be diapered. They've got to be taken care of, and they shall be called gurus. I mean, there's uh -huh. people who, who actually function in the waking state, like to stay in the waking state, and I consider them, uh, it's my opinion that they are pathological in, in their decision to remain in the waking state all the time because they have to be served. I don't know how you feel about it, but I hate to be served. I like to do for myself, don't you? Yeah, I do. All right. So if you like to do for yourself, occasionally it's necessary, more than occasionally, it's necessary to drop into the sleeping state. The waking state has one purpose and one purpose only. It's usable. Well, I shouldn't say that. It actually has one main purpose, primary purpose, and one secondary purpose, which, without the secondary purpose, the primary purpose would be pretty ridiculous. The primary purpose of the waking state is to produce a transformational effect, which we can talk about if it's another question. I can see another question <laughs> bubbling right there. Okay. The waking state and only the waking state of the machine produces a transformational effect upon the essential self, which is not of the machine. How the waking state of the machine can produce a transformational effect on the essential self, let me leave for a moment. Because the secondary purpose, I should mention also, the secondary purpose of the waking state is to study what we call the work, which is to say, one's life after transformation, post-transformational life. And transformation is not the end all. It's the beginning of one's work. One is able to work post-transformation. Mm -hmm.